Take your Bibles from the book of Acts chapter 9, if you would. Of course, as you know, I am preaching in the book of Acts on Sunday morning. The book of Acts is fascinating. Uh, of course, we're seeing um, you know, the outworkings of a new church, the church at Jerusalem, and uh, you know, the emphasis on evangelism. And of course, we're just being introduced to the Apostle Paul. We've talked about his conversion. And uh, you know, if the Lord can save Paul, then you know, the Lord can save others who might seem impossible to see saved. And he can do impossible things in our life, as Brother Parker said just a few moments ago. As I did on Mother's Day, though, I'm trying to take some vignettes out. Uh, the book of Acts is kind of a chronology of events, but there's little interludes, um, some insights into the book of Acts in other uh, books of the Bible. And tonight we'll be looking in Galatians uh, in a few moments to see something that's happening as an interlude in the text we read this Sunday. So let's do this. Let's go ahead and stand tonight, if you would. And uh, I, I just want you to see something here. Oh, let's begin our reading in verse number 20. So Paul, um, you know, has this encounter with Christ, and he's been taken to Damascus, and these are the events that ensue. And straightway, he, verse 20, sorry, verse 20, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is a son of God, but all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem? And came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. So he's going to the city of Damascus to follow those who had dispersed because of his persecution in Jerusalem to bring them back to Jerusalem to face sentence and trial by the Pharisees and Sadducees. But instead he's converted and now he's preaching to these people. But Verse 22, But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled... The Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was known as Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. And we know the story how Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So we had this kind of concise chronology that really occurred over a three-year period of time. But if you take your Bibles down, turn to the book of Galatians chapter 1. We, were, we, we gained a little bit of extra insight here. Now that's, you know, seven or eight verses there that kind of give us this sweeping, um, you know, story. But in Galatians, Paul slows down just a little bit, and he says something else that adds some color and insight to these years. And uh, let's look in verse number 10. We'll read down a little bit. And Paul to the Galatians says, For do I now persuade men or God? And do I seek to please men? If I had yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So the Lord is a servant, and he's not trying to please men. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. In other words, he, he didn't learn all this just from man. He learned it from Christ himself. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but rather of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul spent some additional time with Christ that we don't see there in the book of Acts chapter 9. For you have heard of my conversion or conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. 
Uh, we talked about that Sunday. And profited in the Jews' religion above my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly ze uh, zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, the Damascus Road experience, to reveal His Son to me that I might preach Him among the heathen. Now, this is new information now. Okay, This is, this is an insert into Acts 9. He says this, Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Okay, so he said the first thing I did after I was saved was not to begin to ask people for their opinions about the gospel. Verse 17, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were the apostles before me. Okay, now we know that he went to the apostles and saw them uh, be between these, you know, being persecuted to Damascus and then fleeing to Jerusalem. But here's what he said, But I went into Arabia. Okay, so Acts doesn't mention this at all, but Paul says there was this interlude between Damascus and Jerusalem where I went to Arabia. Okay, now we don't know exactly where Arabia is, but we, we, most scholars believe this was in the wilderness. This would have been a desert place, a place where people would not have inhabited densely. So for the most part, Paul would have been in Arabia probably alone. So he says, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were the apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. So we don't know the exact timetable, but this event occurred. Paul says it did. But notice this, Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem. So in Damascus, went to Arabia for three years, went to Damascus and then to Jerusalem before he went and saw the disciples. And then he tells that he sees these disciples for 15 days, which Acts does say he spent time with them an unspecified amount of time, and then he went back home uh, to his home city. And so I want to talk to you about the interlude tonight, this, this time in Arabia. Holy Father, we, we thank you so much for the night and the time we've had together already. I'm so grateful that we have the resources, the ability, Lord, to continue the missionary endeavor around the world and, and to help people like the Parkers tonight. I pray that, Lord, not only tonight, Lord, can we help them financially, but we could be an ongoing source of encouragement and help to them in the years to come. And uh, Lord, I, I pray you bless them. And then, Lord, for tonight, I, I pray for our continued time here that you would, Lord, help us as we look into this interlude. And Lord, just consider a thought about it. And Lord, something that Paul did that may be missing from our life. So I ask your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. In many ways, um, over the years, my, my life has been defined, I suppose, by a number of characteristics. But I, I don't know that any characteristic would define my life other than grace more than this idea of discipline. And if you're a historic member here, you know I have preached extensively on the subject of discipline over the years. Uh, so much of what's been good in my life, something I would count as a plus, has been accomplished in my life as a result of discipline in my life. Uh, the first thing that attracted me to Eastland Baptist Church was not the music and it wasn't the really cool blue robes that the choir wore at that time. It wasn't really even the hospitality and the kindness of the people. And of course I met Jerry Palmer, one of the first guys I met, and so I was introduced to the best of people here at Eastland and the kindness of people. Um, I, I enjoyed all that, but the thing that really captured me was the, the idea of discipline that I saw in Brother Hardy. 
you know, I found out later he was a submariner, a military man, and he kind of lived, uh, you know, in that kind of world. And I, I, I was attracted to that. I, I guess I needed more of that in my life. And so I, I've adopted that. I've studied that. And again, much of what has been good in my life has come result of discipline. But I can also say this. Uh, most of my most glaring shortcomings and deficiencies are probably a result of a lack of discipline. Things that I still need to work on, things that I struggle with come because I've not mastered discipline in my life. Now by discipline I mean the idea the Apostle Paul would later articulate of keeping my body under. That's why the Apostle Paul said it in the vernacular of that day. You know, we have to strive. We have to, we have to master this body. Um, you know, not only do we have to master life, but the hardest thing you need to have to master and control life is not what's out there in the external, but what's here in the internal. We have to master our minds. We have to master our body. We have to master you know, our thoughts, as the Apostle Paul would also say. We have, to, we have to keep ourselves control. He said we have to keep our body under. We have to keep ourselves under control. The mouth, the tongue, the attitudes, the heart, the spirit, your emotions. We have to control the reins of our heart, bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ. We have to control our thinking and keep that under. We have to keep ourselves under the moral, ethical teaching of the Word of God and make sure we're abiding in that Word. Another thought of discipline is it is the engagement of our faculties to do things we should and to avoid things that we ought not do. Discipline, another way it can be said, it helps us do things we could not otherwise do. By disciplining myself and habits and, and things, I can learn to play the piano or lift weights or, you know, become proficient in something. But that takes self-control and mastery, and that means sacrificing some things for the benefit of something else. Other Bible words that might help us understand discipline would be patience. And by that, I mean the idea of biblical endurance. Continuing to do something that's difficult to do because it's right and good to do, and in time will yield for us a good result. So patience, endurance, the idea of deference. I might want to say something, I might want to do something, but controlling myself not to do that or not to say that in an act of deference is a type of discipline and control. Another Bible word would be temperance, that, that I am self-controlled in all areas of life, what I eat, what I think, what I do, how I behave. Self-control, these are all biblical words for this idea of discipline. Now, one of the most helpful books I've read in the area of spiritual disciplines was written years and years ago. It's not the best book I've ever read, but it's been very thoughtful and meaningful. It was written by a man named Richard Foster. And, and he says some things that I think all of us observe and could identify with. And he says this, so this was written uh, well over a decade ago. He said, superficiality is the curse of our age. He says, the doctrine of instant gratification in his contemporary pursuit is our biggest problem. He said, this desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent or talented or gifted people. What we need today is more people who have depth to them, who can think, take time to think, who can focus their energy and attention on one thing for a duration of time. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. You know, we think what we need is just more talented people, more gifted people, more teachers, whatever else. But what this man is suggesting is that he sees a blight of societies that we don't think, that we're superficial, that we don't, we're not really considering things as we once did. And that's, that's a problem when we're not thinking about problems. 
We're not thinking about where we're going and what's happening in our lives and, and where this world is leading us and taking us. We're not taking time to pause and think about that. And more importantly, maybe pause and think about the Lord and consider and meditate uh, on Him and His truth as the Word of God tells us over and over to do. He says that is an incredible problem. I'm reading a more contemporary book at the moment on our culture's loss. And this is not just the Western world, but this is the world. On the world's problem in the area of loss of focus and deep thinking. He says this, this writer, more than perhaps in any age in history, we are being guided by forces that are robbing us of our ability to think deeply and critically that our minds are undisciplined. Now, that, that is something to consider. He says the age and its technology, its speed, its demands and requirements for multitasking, which is a bit of a misnomer, computers multitask, people switch. And I'll talk more about that, but they're not the same thing. And we may delude ourselves to think we can multitasking. We're just doing two things to a lesser ability than we can do either one of them if we focused on them. But that's for down the road. Um, but he says, these things, these, these issues are guiding and teaching us to be discontented with sustained and disciplined focused thinking. He, he basically describes contemporary culture and what it's doing as a, tr a truer pandemic, as a, virul a virulent strain of d hurt for contemporary society. In other words, he's saying people who live in today's world are being robbed of soul. More than the spiritual aspect, we are being deprived of the intellect and the creativity that we might otherwise have if we lived in a different age or time. That literally our IQ is less than it might be in a different age. Because of the effects of the contemporary world, the pace that we live, and the influences of social media and, and, and far more sweeping things in terms of speed, lack of sleep, the effect of light. I, I'll spend more time on this later. But the whole point is, is he said, we're living in an endemic age of distraction. And it's affecting us spiritually and physiologically. I... I don't want to get ahead of myself. It is my intent later, if not this year, um, next year, uh, maybe after the, the, the time I spend away this fall, to share some insights here because I'm going to spend some considerable time researching this. But I, I want to sh share just some brief research with you just to get you primed for thinking. And I, I know I'm topical here and not in the text, but I'll get back there in a moment. There's a recent study by, done by the American Reading Habits Association that was conducted between 2004 and 2017 with over 30,000 individuals. And they found that the reading of books, now I'm talking about that hardcover books or books like this one, has declined in America by over 40%. Reading of books has declined by over 40%. The number of Americans who didn't read a book in the last year has tripled in that same time span. Three times more people today won't read a book in a year, three times more than in 2013, and this was concluded in 2017, so I'm sure the number is greater. 60% of Americans don't read a book 
at all or ever. This was last conducted somewhere around 1617. The average American in 2017 spent 20 minutes reading any kind of print and almost six hours on their phone. Uh, that was over, you know, we're, we're eating five, six years ago. Now, you might argue, well, people are substituting screen reading for book reading. And that would be true to a degree. We all know what Kindle is. But those are not equivalent to the same. Okay, and this isn't an anti-technology uh, sermon at all. This is rather um, an intellectual argument, okay? Not hyperbole or diatribe. They're not equivalents. When we read a book, it's been proven that we tend to want to read it linearly. In other words, in a focused way. We read a chapter, then another chapter, and another chapter. But when people read a screen, and I'm just going to use that, that kind of term, like phone, uh, iPad, whatever else, they tend not to read that way. We are being conditioned by screens to scan instead of read. So what happens when you read a, when you read a screen, uh, and, and there's deep reasons for this because information comes to us 17 times, there's 17 more times more information that comes to each and every one of us in a day than did, let's say, 50 years ago. 17 times more, which means this, the more information you're, you're trying to process, the, the, the less meaningful any of it becomes. And so we have, a, we have a specific bandwidth of information. Human ability, human beings, despite what we think, have a very limited cognitive ability. And we think we can keep up with all this, but the truth is we can't. And, and I'll describe in a moment what's happening to us instead. But so we, so we, we, we fast read. And so what happens is we do this so much, we read from a screen. And let me give you an example. You pay attention next time you're reading on your phone. You read for three minutes and then you check the weather. You read for another two or three minutes and you check your Facebook. You read another three minutes and you, and you see what the news is. And if you start keeping track of that, you're going to be shocked. And then you're going to be bothered. Because you're going to find out you become a puppet. Amen. And your mind is not your own anymore. And so what happens is, is when you go back to reading a book again, you're going to find that you've been conditioned by that because it's it's literally 10 times more you spend doing that than this, that you want to read this the same way. Yeah, that's right. yeah. And so the final today, people simply can't read a book. It's not that they don't want to, they lack the ability to do it. Now I'm not saying like, oh, they just lack the, the motivation. No, I'm telling you, physiologically, they can't. They don't have the capacity because they've been conditioned to be distracted and get that dopamine by looking at something different and then something different and then something different and literally you're depriving yourself of a drug that you would otherwise not need in that quantity because of the time we distract ourselves over and over and over and over again reading from a screen. We tend to read non-linearly from a screen. Um, we, we, we read in a cursory way and they have found over and over in these studies that we do not retain the same amount of information when we read from a screen versus a book. It's caused us to lose our ability to focus in a sustained way. Again, we remember less. There's been studies done, I've seen these re done re repeatedly, that when you simply, when you're, when you're engaged in checking your email and checking Facebook every day and you try to perform a, a, a high level cognitive function, you do that at an IQ level 10 points lower than you would do it if you spent your day in quiet and solitude. 10 IQ points lower. To put that in perspective, 
that's more IQ points lost than if you were to smoke marijuana for two or three hours and then try to perform the function. No, I'm not challenging you that. I'm just saying that's, that's the math. That's just from being on social media throughout the day. And there are permanent physiological effects that's happening to our neocortex. We are losing between 20 and 30% of our cognitive power because of our addiction in this area. We lose stamina, emotional strength. The medium is changing the way we process information. Um, we are becoming more distracted, needed. Um, we are getting more information. We, we, we create this need to switch. And so it makes me worried about sermons like tonight when we're trying to focus and we worry about the weather. Um, the average American is distracted every three minutes. Every three minutes. In other words, we don't sustain a stop for more than three minutes before we're distracted by something. And of course, a lot of this comes from current technology, if not the way we live in the world we live in. The average CEO of any company has less than 25 minutes total that are uninterrupted in his eight-hour day. There's no ability to sustain thought more than maybe 25 minutes at any given time, and that would be the, the, the largest time. All this comes at a cost, which I'll articulate at a later date. We remember less. We endure mental fatigue, depression, creativity diminishes. We are exhausted. We become more air-prone. IQ is diminished. And it's the first time in human history where we are exceeding our cognitive ability to process information. And here's the crazy thing, there's no pushback. We all smile about it. Oh, we're on our phone, a lot. And again, this is not anti-phone, this is a totally different thought. I'm just trying to help you understand what the problem is. We seem not to have any concern about fixing this problem, culturally, politically, or even individually. We are losing and we're delusional because we think we're going to we'll be okay, we're not. We're not going to be okay. <laughs> I'm the worst example of this. People talk 10 to 15% faster today than they did in the 1950s. Okay, that's like 25 or 30% for me. But as a culture, we speak faster. That's a little scary. You think, well, so what? No, that's, that's sort of a big deal. In 2012 or 13, and that's, that's when they started this study, a news headline came across the news. That stayed in people's, the forefront of people's attention span for almost 18 hours. Okay? In other words, they would think about that for 18 hours. Back in the day, 50, 60, 70 years ago, people might think about a, a major news item for days or weeks. But by 2012, we couldn't process that and we're ready to move on to the next thing in 17 hours. Three or four years later, it was eight hours. Three or four years later, and closer to contemporary time, it's two to three hours. This is not a challenge, I don't want you to do it. But you can go to CNN or Fox and see how long a headline stays on there before they change it. Because they don't change it every two hours, you're not interested anymore. So I wonder how long we can think about a sermon after it's preached. It's not a challenge, it's not even a dig. I mean, just, it's a question.
I'm closing that book. And so what I want to do for tonight, very quickly now, because I've done all that, I'm setting the stage for the thought I have. And I'm, I'm going to suggest to you there's a problem that we have to address in our lives. Because this is you. This is not some people out there. This is the membership of Eastland Baptist Church. And I am going to commit myself to do a lengthy study on the thought, as a man thinketh or doesn't, so is he in the future. I'm just not ready yet. But for tonight, I, I, I'm going to suggest that you and I need maybe to put the brakes on our life and think for a moment. We, we may need a deeper life. One of my favorite theologians is Mr. Rogers. And I'm really not even kidding you. The man was a brilliant thinker. And if you want to find out some of the things, he, he was a prophet of contemporary culture in a lot of ways. What he saw coming is, was really amazing. But you all, we all know the quote. He was the guy who originated. He said, contemporary culture is a mile wide and an inch deep. And, and that's, today it might be, contemporary culture is 10 miles wide and about a millimeter deep. In terms of our ability to think. That is a tragedy and that is a loss. And it is not the kind of life that God intends for His people to live. Twice in the Word of God, the Bible warns, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Now knowledge, don't, don't mistake that for information. Because that's what we do today. We want information. No, what He's saying is people are destroyed by their inability to think deeply about subjects that affect their life. They can't think. People are destroyed. God's people are destroyed. Churches can be destroyed because people stop thinking biblically. Knowledge isn't information, but it's a critical thinking, a kind of meditation that God asks us to do, like in the book of Joshua. Meditate on this book day and night because that's where you'll find success. That's how you navigate life. <coughs> Deeper things, I think, is something we might all wish for in life, but it's rarely experienced by any of us. In fact, it's rarely even discussed I, I'm not going I'm to be picky or even mean or unkind. I just, this, this stuff's everywhere. We think about it in the world out there, but it's in our churches. I recently listened to a couple messages, preached at some meetings, where the subject of the King James Bible was discussed. And, and the dialogue went something like this, well, stop asking questions about it. And why do we got to keep talking about this? And the, the, the rant goes on to basically say, um, stop asking me questions about this. That breaks my brain. If it's worth reading and, and keeping, why in the world can it not be defended? Amen. And why would you not want to defend it? For, forgive me, that is stupid. There are textual intellectual, historical reasons for using this book. I'm going to use this book. It's all I'm going to use. But to tell people, well, don't question me on it, is unforgivable. It's unforgivable. That's how all kinds of movements go way astray. Don't think deeply. Don't study. Don't investigate. Don't talk to smart people is foolishness. Okay? And this is done over and over. That's why you, you read the Bible line upon line and precept upon precept. You study it. You, you're like a Berean to see if the things that are said are so. Right. I, 
I appreciate your confidence in me as your pastor, but you need to read it yourself and study it for yourself. This is what the Catholics did for, for eons is don't read the book, don't read the book, don't read the book. Let me just tell you, that is incredibly dangerous. You need to read the book. I would tell you not every, not, not every translation is the same or equitable. And you need to figure out why, if, and I can spend time talking about it, but there are textual, academic, and historical reasons why we use this book. But to ask you just to accept a carte blanche is too much. That's frustrating to me, but that's across the board in every area of life. We, we listen to the TikTok author on how to do things, and we don't question it because it's on TikTok. So it's everywhere in our culture. It's endemic. There's no depth, no argument, no reason, no deep thinking on anything. Because thinking takes time. It takes study. It, 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 takes, it takes discipline. And TikTok trains us not to have it. Social media trains us not to have it. It has conditioned our mind not to even be able to do it. You know, you and I should long for the quenching water that the Word of God and thinking and meditation can bring, but we rarely stop at the well long enough to lap it up. I, I'm often concerned that contemporary culture, you know, in, in the parable of the soils, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the, the, the soil of no depth, there's the, super, there's the superficial, there's the crowded. And there's good ground, but it takes time to plow the ground. And often we're too hardened and, and, and too fast moving. The connection to my thought tonight is, is it takes discipline to slow down, to be quiet, to tolerate silence, to spend some concentrated focus time reading your Bible and then stopping and doing nothing afterwards so you can think about it. Oh, there's my 20 minutes, move on. Here's my 10 minutes. The 20 things that are going to ensue in the next five hours. It takes discipline to be free of distractions, to put down your phone. Not to be constantly curious about the latest political news and what's happening. I promise you the word will go on whether you understand, whether you watch every headline or not. And it might be better to spend some time reading some actually good resource sites rather than CNN and Fox, which are both a joke. And that's entertainment. That is not news. If you've missed that, that's part of the delusion. It takes discipline to be quiet. It takes discipline to read. So, uh, not vouching for the source, but if you want to read about an article, go to The Atlantic and read the 20 pages on the article that it takes to really comprehend the subject. Read a medical journal so you'll understand your medical condition instead of Wikipedia. Amen. Not everything can be done in five minutes. Right. You with me? Yes, I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just I'm, I'm trying to describe a social condition that we're in. We are bothered by quiet, the absence of activity. We don't take time for contemplation. I, I used to take two weeks a year by myself, walking in the woods as I pastored Eastland Baptist Church. I didn't even take Terry. Remember all those years? Sorry about that. I just, two years. 
I did that for 10 years. I'd go to places like Yellowstone or Estes Park, and I, I, I just, I took a journal and I walked. And I got some trouble some places uh, because I walked upon some grizzly bears and some other things that I probably shouldn't have, but I was in meditation. I don't do that anymore. Life's too busy. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. I don't know if I have one day that's not interrupted in my life anymore. And I tell you that because that bothers me. And if you think about your life, I, I, I thought about the distractions of my life. How many times I check my phone, I look at the weather. These things that are relatively benign, but are training my mind to be continually distracted. When's the last time you had 30 minutes of quiet, an hour of quiet, a day of quiet? We all know what a vacation is, but what about a few days of just, I'm going to think. I'm going to, I'm going to research something that's, uh, that's coming up in my life. I'm going, to, I'm going to try to figure out what it means to be 60. I'm actually studying that. <laughs> I want to think about my next decade. I don't want to just stumble into it. I want to think about it. I, I don't know that I'm better for my absence of these things, but I'm busy. I'm productive. A survey of Scripture reveals that those God uses most greatly were prepared spiritually, emotionally to do exploits through extended periods of quiet and solitude. Moses spent years in the desert alone. David, 13 years out of the limelight and quiet in caves in the wilderness. That's the time he wrote most of the Psalms. Joseph was in two years in prison alone. Elijah was hid at the brook Cherith. John the Baptist, the locust-eating preacher, lived mostly in isolation and contemplation. Of course, Jesus, throughout this three and a half years of public ministry, retreated to the wilderness to pray over and over and over, interludes between these extraordinary acts of ministry. But instead of following those examples, we tend to do the opposite. We read books on how to be more effective. We read books on how to be more efficient. We read books on how to be better multitaskers. On the latest organizer, like, we need more of that. I have a library full of that stuff. I don't know that I'm better for it. I'm sure I've learned something. I'm not against it. I'm just simply saying I have far fewer books on the contemplative life, meditation, the things that the Bible actually, you know, commends. Sometimes just trying to do more, better, just clutters the mind. I'm not against it. I, I, I want to be more efficient. I want to be more effective. But what if that was coming for more time in prayer and thought? And, and, and maybe not so much in just the latest gadgetry to help me be, you know, whatever. All of that from Galatians chapter 1. Because <laughs> here's the thing. It's just so quick. Paul says, before I went and conferred with any man. That's what he says in Galatians 1. Before I went and talked to the, the, the apostles. Now, how, how does this ministry thing work? And by the way, let, 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 let me know what you think about theology. He said, before I did any of that, before I assayed myself to join the disciples and apostles, he said, I went to Arabia instead, and I spent three years with Jesus. You know where I got my theology? It was in Arabia. 
Now, it's from a wealth of information he had from the Old Testament. This is where his, his pharisaical nature, his education, was probably a help in terms of information. But he was processing this now in the new light that Jesus Christ is alive and he's, he's deity. He's figuring all this out. And several times in the New Testament, Paul refers to his time in Arabia, where he spent time alone with God. I, I don't know if this is equivalent or it was meant to be equivalent, but the disciples had, the other disciples had three years, three and a half years with Jesus, and Paul had his three years in the desert with Jesus in a different way. He had revelations and visions, the Bible tells us, during this time, you know, saw into the heavens. I, I'm not saying, because he goes on and he spent time with Peter. And imagine the conversations they had were amazing. Before he did anything else, he just tried to figure things out. He spent time with the Lord alone. Three years in the desert, in Arabia. You know what that means exactly? I just don't think it was densely populated. Three years. It's three years thinking, contemplating, growing, in wonder and appreciation for his experience of salvation. And the theology that he would employ in writing the book of Romans, Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians. The encouragement he provided to the Philippians. Time to think and grow and be deeper. For, to be prepared for the depth of heart to do extraordinary things that he did and endured in the later part of the book of Acts. It was from this well, this pool, that he ran his race and he finished his course. He took this time away to be a deeper human being. There are two things he specifically mentions in Galatians chapter 1 he didn't do. I, I, I didn't let other people primarily shape my thinking. I let the Word of God and Jesus do that. And I didn't rush ahead of God's timetable. I stopped and slowed down and I learned what the Lord wanted me to do before I went and did anything. He paused. He went to his quiet place to gain the incredible insights that he used and wrote about in the rest of the New Testament. Today we try so hard to be relevant to the culture. And I'm not against all of that. And you, know, you know I'm not. When what we might really need to be more relevant to the culture is to spend more quiet time away from it. So we have a message and a thought that might be more meaningful to a culture that is 10 miles wide and a millimeter deep. We're afraid to miss the drumbeat of the world. So that's ah, not me. Put your phone away for three days and see if you don't have a panic attack. I'm serious. That is a challenge. But the Bible's filled with times like Paul, where the power of solitude was deemed more important than information from the culture. I think that I, I don't have tonight. In three minutes, a prescription for growing deeper. But I might suggest to you, instead of trying to do more, more efficiently, instead of speeding up, you might deliberately slow down. I'm not talking about not doing anything and being lazy. I'm talking about putting the mind to work and thinking and praying. Far less TV watching and scrolling. More quiet walks, less TV. Maybe an hour in the Bible. Not your 10 minutes of scheduled reading. Now just open it and read it. Paper and pen. Lord, you speak to me. Let's, let's not be in a rush to find out what you might want to say to me today. 
Instead of three weeks of vacation, maybe in the midst of that, how about three days of retreat? Instead of listening and talking so much, how about listening and seeing more? Have more silent time. Get in the car and don't turn on the radio. <laughs> Just take that 30-minute drive home quiet. See if the Lord won't talk to you. See what happens when, uh, after like 7 o'clock, you just let the world be quiet. No noise in your world. That might be more spiritually healthy for you. Not so controlled by a thousand distractions. I'm telling you, we, we are seriously addicted here, which I'll talk more about later. Spend less time worrying and striving and more time praying. If you're worrying about it, you probably can't do anything about it. So if you get anything about it, why don't you go to the one who can? And I might suggest to you that we all learn to declutter our life a little bit. The Bible gives us this metaphor that I've, I've never succeeded. It's always the forefront of our mind. Better's little and quietness therewith than both the hands full, full of vexation and strife. If I could just become a better juggler, or maybe put one of the balls down. And I'm not advocating, ab, you know, advocating the Lord's work or responsibilities. I'm just saying if you want to do any one thing better, you might focus more on one thing than ten. Three years in Arabia. I think there's some instruction there. Three years of quiet. I just know this. Um, the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. Deep calls to deep. It's in the Word of God, right? We might be better to read between the lines and see some of the interludes here. Let's be quiet. Let's slow down. Let's think deeply. Let's not be so superficial in all the information that we might know so we can think about a little bit of it more at a greater level. We're, look up here, I'm done. Hey, we're going somewhere. This culture is going somewhere. Do you have any idea where it is? Sometimes we don't know we have a condition until we see the doctor and he tells us. Okay. You don't take my word for it. We have a condition. And I'm telling you we do. And you need to think about it because you are not everything the Lord intends for you to be as a man thinketh or not so is he